Hello, and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us in yet another sunny day in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Davies Roberts, Managing Director of Flare Audio. Davies, hello. Hi, how are you doing? Excellent. Thank you for coming on the show today. We might as well jump straight in. What is your personal leadership style? Right. So I'm, I like to run as a, as a team uh, manager. Um, I'm pretty much sort of favored on the country style. Um, I'm, I run a relaxed ship, but I, I like to see people um, ensure that they are productive and that we all row uh, as one. Um, I used to be a fireman um, for 13 years. And so I'm used to running with teams of people who depend on each other. Mm-hmm. So my leadership style is very much down the uh, route of trying to support people, trying to be um, holistically, you know, supportive to them, but as well as making sure that we get things done. Uh, Well, talk me through that transition. That must be really interesting. How do you apply the lessons learned from uh, being a member of the fire service to operating a business? Well, especially with a startup, things are always on a knife edge. And so um, that's a very similar thing to the fire brigade where you're always going to a fire and you're in high risk situation. So uh, I apply the things I learned in the fire brigade uh, into my into the way I run my company. Um, for example, I share a lot of the, uh, the daily day-to-day issues that we face as a company to my entire team so that mm-hmm. we are all aware of, of the problems and we all try and solve the issues together. So collective responsibility, really getting everyone involved is, is your, uh, your metier. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. If you don't share a problem, then the stresses rely on the people who don't share that, that issue or that problem. Um, that, that obviously works very well with a small team when you're, when you're a startup. But obviously, as we grow into a larger and larger outfit, then um, that, that may well have to change. Um, but uh, as you're starting up, the key bit is to keep everybody rowing in the boat simultaneously and aware of every issue that arises. And Flare Audio is growing uh, quite a bit, isn't it? In fact, I understand that recently you launched uh, the world's first premium eco speaker. Can you talk a little bit about that for me? Yeah. So when we developed uh, back in 2012, we developed two key technologies, which are called Space and Vortex. And what they were doing was basically enabling us to create mirror image audio. We stop resonation of a loudspeaker and then we silence the rear radiation of a driver so that we just hear the front side. And the result is mirror image sound. So we deployed this originally about five years ago in um, Olympic Cinema in Barnes and then Archlight Cinema in Battersea. Um, Selfridge Cinema became aware of our loudspeakers and approached us to do their installation in their new uh, Dolby Atmos um, cinema in Selfridges. In Selfridges. Mm-hmm. And um, when they came to me, I said, look, hang on, we've, we've actually got a really exciting development with Vortex technology because we can now deploy it in sheets of paper that we can press rather than using wood and plastics, which is what the rest of the industry uses. And from a recycling point of view, I'm very much on the, on the plastic uh, issue and we are doing everything we can to remove um, plastics from what we do. Um, even in products, I, I take a negative uh, view of it. So um, when I approached them with the loudspeaker that was using recycled paper, they absolutely embraced it and um, and placed an immediate order. And we had to go from production, uh, pre-prototype work through to uh, production in about seven weeks. Um, wow. and, and anyone who's ever done uh, product development knows that that's almost an impossible 
thing to do. And we're talking about a six-figure sum order here. So it's not, it wasn't a small order and mm-hmm. it was a big uh, risk for Selfridges to take uh, as well as us. Um, but we, we took it on and we, we didn't want to lose that opportunity to showcase, you know, what we can do. And the result is they put the, the loudspeakers into the cinema. They uh, had a launch event. People were saying it's the best sound they've ever heard. And um, it, it, it sounds incredible in there. And then um, Selfridges Store wanted us to stock the um, loudspeakers. And now Harrods then approached us too. And it's now in Harrods uh, in, the, in their um, floor five of the technology section. So it really was a case of, you know, understanding how our existing patents and our existing technology could be redeployed into the environmental aspect and, and really do it properly rather than try and just do something for marketing or try and do something to show that you're doing good. We really wanted to uh, absolutely smash it out of the park. And, and, and I think we've, we've done that it's just a case of now working away and making people aware. Fabulous. Now, now you said that um, you had a rather quick ramp up for production for this. How did you keep your staff motivated? What what sort of techniques did you use uh, to enable that uh, that fast turnaround? Um, first of all, it's it, with anybody. Everyone needs to find what they're good at. And my one of my mottos at Flair: If you ace it, own it. If you don't ace it, don't own it. And I apply that same methodology to all my staff members. So. Everyone that's working on a team, we want the best person possible to be doing each job. And so um, while that sounds obvious, it's not always um, it's not always obvious to even the people concerned. And what we do is we look at what everybody's doing and we understand what, what makes them excited and what makes them tick. And we allow people to, to engage. So um, with zero development, we had to go from prototype not and then obviously get all the parts in get all the different components in everyone everything was was bespoke we then had to put it together and learn how to make it and so having everybody engage with that process learning and understanding what people were doing the best enabled us to really deploy suddenly from from having prototypes over 100 speakers made in in about two weeks um and we we deployed it and uh, we got it done It, it it's it's really a case of creating the A team and creating people who are not just going to work as a job, but they want to be part of something that's a movement and trying to get that um, into the team so that they all find the bet, the bit that they're best at. A bit like any sport, you know, you, mm. you, you wouldn't just pick um, your, your, an average runner to do your hundred meters run as a team. You'd pick your fastest runner and, that's the sort of attitude that we take at, at Flair. We want everyone to be dynamic and be able to move between roles so that they can find out what they're best at. Now, it sounds like uh, professional development and personal development are really important for you over at Flair. Um, yes. Why don't we wind the years back a bit and tell me a bit about your development. Was there a particular leader that you worked with or for that shaped the way you are today? Wow, no. For me, my journey was... Um, was the, the, the hard route up. Um, I left school at 15 uh, with no qualifications. Um, I didn't do well at school because I didn't conform. Um, I, um, I'm, I, I'm a very a person who thinks in a very basic way. I look at um, the world with a very simplistic view. And I, I joined the lifeboat for two years, did the fire brigade for 13. Then uh, Naomi, my wife, got a job in, in, in sound. She was working for a youth uh, 
organization doing under 18 um, events to, to help youths, you know, engage in, in society. And um, from that, I fell in love with music. And, um, and then I discovered that music wasn't stable. You could go to a gig and it would sound good and then go to another gig and it would sound bad. And the reason was that the entire industry of sound had been guessing. Sound is invisible. Mm. And so with, with it being invisible and no accurate tools to identify it, it means that you can't guess and everyone is guessing. And so for, for me, um, it, was, it was a complete journey of self-discovery. It was a case of if I don't um, unlock this, I don't have a future. And I, I, I became fixated with trying to understand what was going wrong. And it was in 2012 when things changed for me because I was under so much stress. Um, I was writing my own patents. I had a team of three people. Uh, I was working from my garage. I had uh, half a million pounds worth of debt because I was throwing everything I had into trying to develop the technology. It was at a gig where I was completely, you know, at, at a really low point where I started to think about sound as, at a particle level. So I started to imagine particles vibrating rather than imagining sound wave traveling through the air. And it was at that point that I realized that's the way I can identify technology. That's the way I can identify how we need to, to do all this. So I, I really haven't had anyone to have an inspiration for me. It really has been a case of either do it or die. And, um, you know, when you are at threat from losing your house and at threat from losing everything, you you either work away forward or you give up. And so, uh, for me, it's been myself really. It's been a case of having to dig a little bit deeper and then a little bit deeper and then a little bit deeper. And that has taught my brain how to get the best out of people, how to develop technology that works, how to um, make things that work and, 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 and how to, you know, even things like Facebook where we, we now get 75% of our sales through the, the platform because we're using the algorithm to connect with the world. We're selling to 183 countries now because of Facebook and we're using their algorithm to target people who are, are relevant to our, to what we're doing. And so that's all a journey of self-discovery, not, not a journey of, um, of, looking at others. And I think mm -hmm. that the problem for me is if I was to become, if I was to look at someone and follow their path, all I'm going to end up doing is making the, either the same mistakes they're doing or uh, adopt the biases that they have. And mm -hmm. I've become aware because of my focusing of particles that actually, if I really want to do amazing things in this world, I really need to just focus on making exactly the right decision each time and focus on, you know, where the biases are, understanding where the flaws are, understanding why everyone's pushing in different directions, and and I can walk that magic path between. Davies, what I'm hearing here is that your key to leadership is perseverance, and uh, yeah. I wish I could hear more from you right now. Unfortunately, we are out of time. Uh, you have to come back on the show and tell us more. Um, Davies, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing leadership with you. I very much look forward to having you on the program again soon. No problem. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you. That was Davies Roberts, Managing Director of Flare Audio. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Sir Jeff Hurst. 
We're now joined, uh, though, by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final. Sir Jeff Hurst, uh, thank you very much for coming on today. Uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, And perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. But when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? (laughs) Well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Oh, there, there are one or two people who are very familiar um, uh, who do Google me realise that I did uh, score nothing for Essex. Uh, for my only game for Essex first team when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool, many, many years ago. 1962, I think that was. So I didn't, um, yes, I, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be <laughs> playing, I guess, with one or two injuries. Um, but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, mm. being stuck between the two sports. And I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a, there's a, another world that might exist where um, Sir Jeff Hurst was a, a first-class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, whether it's business or cricket or, or football, obviously the importance of leadership it can't be understated, no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes. Was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at the football. And uh, the, the quite always mentioned when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and the manager over many, many, many years. He um, He's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over years, I guess. He would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with. He'd worked with. So you're very fortunate. I think you, you think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and a great coach as we had in Ron Greenwood. And, of course, a great manager in South Ramsey. So to come across people like that of that calibre can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life. And that's, that's quite purely the case. Absolutely. And in those early days um, at West Ham, uh, with, with a manager like, like uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with your other players and of course they become your friends who did you look at to at the time uh, when to inspire confidence in yourself was it more was it Peters I think probably well I was very fortunate to play with the colour of the players I did again mm-hmm. again extremely fortunate to play with you know, the captain um, of England and West Ham and Martin Peters who was a fantastic player and some, as far as Martin's concerned I think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved and what a wonderful player he was. In terms of inspiring confidence, I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me, I guess, would be the captain, Bob Moore. Although he was only uh, about eight months older than me, he graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier. He played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more looks upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy with the same age group as me. And I looked at how he how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, 
and how he played. And so he he would say, I would also say he was a big influence on me. One thing I would say about leadership, uh, what I do, I do understand clearly all walks of life. Leadership is at the top, is absolutely vital for a, a, for a business, a football team, in any walk of life to be successful. And it's quite evident. I was in the motor trade for a long time as well, selling car warranties to car dealerships. And you could almost tell when you walked into the business, uh, in a, many of the car dealerships, you could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction people came and welcomed you that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all. And so I understand the, the, the value and quality of leadership and that's why I'm very fortunate to be involved in my career in those early days with two, two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Al Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that. But obviously... Uh, after uh, oh, at West Ham, your uh, plane came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man, I'm sure, when you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge. When it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? Well, one thing, the first thing I say about Alf Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who had on me um, as a person. Um, naturally it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you it can have a great impact on your <laughs> your career and of course your life but yep. in that era I was involved for six or seven years he it was quite clear who was the boss he was quite very very strict probably at a time maybe overly strict but at a time you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now but he was the most powerful man I came across and very few people and he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out who didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group part of a team it is important that if you've got a group of people and that's in any walk of life they're all singing off the same hymn suit and you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in the organization, one thing I have learned and I've taken on in my life, my family, you've got somebody in the group that doesn't want to be part of it, you, you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was quite ruthless with that in his, in his staff. And I think that's one, thing I, one of the most serious ones I think I've learned over a long period of time. And is there, do you think... Uh... A, a specific moment, I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, if you could uh, perhaps pick right now, that did show those uh, qualities in uh, South so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly, um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team, or certainly in the squad, and surprising there were not. There was no necessary reason for it, but looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of a group. Um, so that that's that's for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing um, in it, only a few games before. I was I was playing and I played with Jimmy Greaves in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final. And it looked at that stage as if I was going to be be playing in, in the team but uh, in a couple of friendly games more friendly games before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway I think in Denmark mm. 
I didn't. I played two of the four games, and I probably didn't quite replicate my my form that I'd been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England. And he he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay. He started off with Jimmy Green and Roger Allen. So I, I had an impact of thinking I at that stage I, like I was going to play and didn't start because of just a lack of form. I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position. And somewhat fortuitously, I only got back in the team because of a, a nasty gash to shin um, on Jimmy Green's leg. And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? Oh, not for me personally, no. I, I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second. I think mm. I was just happy to be, you know, be involved in the squad initially. Uh, not at all. I didn't, you're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really, looking back out. Mm. So I never really felt, people talk about pressure a lot and it's there and people, players talk about people talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessarily feel any great pressure, pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important, to say about Alf Ramsey, the people he, he left behind that were left in the squad after he'd moved one or two players out, the squad were uh, a, a bunch of very hard-nosed, professional, uh, top-quality people. And that was, again, the leadership that Alf showed. He, he got people in together that were very, very strong personally. Um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had. We were a very... I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals. Um, we have some great players, but overall, they were great hard-nosed professional players um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with, you know, over the years. And Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm, I'm not making this up, I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realise there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I... I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows. In fact, starting this week, over the next uh, two or three months. And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about 20 minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And the, the, there's, I won't mention both. They're too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, the other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. But the, the, the other ridiculous question I get asked, did I realise there were people on the pitch? And of course I jokingly say, yes, I was just about to, to shoot to score the goal and I looked round, put my foot on the ball and looked round for a little while and said, oh dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch. So that's, uh, I've had been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so I joke, make a joke about that and saying, yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited but just had a, had a glance round, you know. Maybe it does prove there are things that, such as stupid questions, really. Um, oh, yeah, there, are, there certainly are. I've got another one which I won't bore you in too. It won't be too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a Jersey or Channel Line, Jersey or Jersey, two or three mm. years ago, and most stupid, irrelevant questions, absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever. 
which uh, was absolutely, but I can use that now because it, it is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe another time then, but we. Um, uh, well, you want me, I, I can tell you if you want, you want, you got time, I can tell, I tell you if you want. Jeff, go on, go on. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay, so I was uh, doing a, a, at a dinner in the Channel Lines, three or four hundred people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honor. Mm-hmm. And this occasion, I was speaking for about 20 minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening. And there was usual football questions. And then all of a sudden, I heard uh, somebody at the back who, who asked a question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give mm. this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, when a turtle loses its shell, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> What a question. What a question. Uh, well, I think that would be in, definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Uh, well, uh, and we, you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to put up with <laughs> well, things no, like that. I, just, but then again, I found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well. So it did, uh, um, it did make again, laugh that day. If you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. Um, <laughs> but there, there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff, I think um, you, you were a young man when see, this happened, when you must have realised that people, teammates, began looking at you for leadership. Um, is that something that occurred to you, or did you just realise that by, by quick, one way or the other, people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration? Well, possibly. That's never really struck me until you've actually mentioned it now, quite frankly. That's a new a new question. Mm. Does anybody look up to me? I'm sure perhaps uh, there are there are people who pay you compliments of, of uh, fans of, of West Ham and uh, of Stoke and, of course, in, uh, England fans who... Um, I, I think probably uh, it would be very immodest of me to, to suggest I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. Um, well, you, but, you don't but, uh, have to, but I will. Uh, well, um, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it. Uh, perhaps um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a, a helpful effect. Uh, but I do think you, you how you behave and set examples on and off the pitch is people must realise that that's, that has an influence how you react and behave mm. to, to situations on and off the field surely probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team latterly. Um, yeah. And and with that, looking at um, uh, football today, uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you as someone with um, those qualities that you could identify in a, in a natural leader? Um, well, a player, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really? Well, I think some of the outstanding, I think the, the, the best example about a, a leader and at the moment is, is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to uh, acquire the players and get them to their attitude is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but there's more than just being good players in football. It's a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work 
for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence these unbelievable results. There are, you know, and the great players not always succeed as, as individuals or probably even uh, certainly as a team if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that, that comes through the leadership. That's not just luck. Absolutely. That's, that's absolutely leadership. He'd be the best example, of course, in, in football terms today. Uh, easily, easily. And of course, but going back not that long ago, Alex Ferguson is just absolutely, mm. you've got to take him as the first example, but Klopp's only done this over a period of time, a short period of time. But if you look at the 25, 26, 27 years that Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United, and subsequently since he's gone, how they they are not doing so well. He's the best example of management I've seen. We've seen, we've probably ever seen, and I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again. It's ast- absolutely astonishing, astonishing. And do you think? Could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or even Ron Greenwood managing teams today? Yes, I think so. I think yes, no, mm. no question at all. I think they, uh, Ron Greenwood, yeah. The answer, straightforward answer, is yes. Um, good they, <laughs> the straightforward answer is yes. I can elaborate as much as you want, but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes. Uh, and with um, and I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so, but um, I'm conscious of the um, time. Um, looking um, back uh, through your um, playing career, perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England. Who was it uh, that struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership but uh, companionship and and level headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later? Well, I think we were, I was very fortunate, and I wouldn't take any one player out. I think looking at so that, many. yeah, so many, and that's why we were successful because we had so many. Um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned uh, throughout the team, I think that that was outstanding, and uh, uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about uh, all of them in, in that breath. And there was nobody. And going back on an earlier earlier question for me, the um, all hard nosed professionals, good good teammates, mm. good socially, and that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days. Every year, uh, up until about five years ago, of course, with, with the uh, sadly dwindling yes. numbers, we we still got on. Our wives got on with all together. All those years later, it didn't just finish after '66. That reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. um, getting on with each other, lasted for, for a long, long, long time. And I wouldn't I... when it, when you put those those questions and how you categorise those. I would pick every one of the 11 players um, who you put in that category that were like that. There was nobody else. They were all outstanding. And I think that was a big part. I can't stress how big a part that was. And I've said that many, many times for the success of the team. We had some great players. We had some great players, of course. But without the attitude alongside that, going back to an earlier question, we wouldn't have been as uh, ultimately, ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, you, the, the the whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts. But with it, 
the word is team. Absolutely. And I always use the word team when I talk sometimes. You know, together, everyone achieves more. And that, that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. And uh, lastly, Jeff, uh, looking, if, if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life, what would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single-mindedness, uh, single-mindedness dedication, dedication to the job, um, thinking about that, that, that role, that job in leadership all the time. It's a huge part of your life. But it, you, I don't think you can switch off when you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level. You may, you know, have a, way, have a couple of weeks holiday, but I'm even sure if, if these top managers and lead, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm, I'm sure there's not, uh, there's, they will not switch off for, for two weeks um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organisation. And I think that's, you're completely focused. You're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements, and it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to, nice to have a talk about this and just go over the, go over the past and just uh, refresh my, mem- my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.